Namaste. My name is Aurum Nanda and welcome to another episode of Such Conversations Matter. Okay, so uh, welcome everyone. Welcome to this uh, brand new episode of Such Conversations Matter and uh, you guys must be thinking ki main kaun hoon aur ye aaj yahan par alag alag log kaun hai. So before you get confused, right? So we have today with us Saurav Nanda, right? Jo ki abhi tak jinko aapne dekha hai interview lete hue but now he is on the hot seat and with me I have Anurag who happens to be a very dear close friend. प्लेजर इन इंट्रोड्यूसिंग योर गेस्ट दिस टाइम इट्स अर ऑनर टू प्रेजेंट यूर्स पीपल नो यू आर ऑलरेडी बट लेट मी जस्ट स्पीक अ कपल ऑफ लाइन अबाउट यू So Saurabh uh, is an educator and a career consultant with a rich experience in engineering and psychology. The two fields that stand at a unique contrast. Saurabh has a knack for presenting the most abstract and technical content in a simplified yet engaging way, which I'm sure uh, you have noticed this time in this series of podcasts. In 2019 he contributed towards Awaji a rural island near Osaka Japan which was a training hub for B2B and B2C training focusing on global business needs and most importantly on United Nations sustainable development goals also known as SDGs and from there i guess the spark of having these conversations that mattered let me start with the proverbial question that you generally ask your guests right <laughs> so uh, how are you managing life during this lockdown <laughs> i think before i answer that question first of all let me thank both of you to taking for taking out time and giving me this amazing introduction uh yeah that's about it that's that's all i have to say about it because it was amazing and it is so heartwarming uh lockdown i think uh, we we three the three of us uh, you know we started uh, working on different projects uh right from the beginning uh i think the first conversation that i had uh, with uh, both of you uh was in april when uh, you know we we had some ideas of you know let's let's use technology for good and uh, let's let's start creating new things and that was just a spark uh to you know uh, go for it uh, the lockdown uh, has been a crazy journey uh, first 20 25 days i didn't know what to do i was in the same boat as the rest of the country and the rest of the world actually um i had to move to delhi uh, for work but that got cancelled because of covid 19 it did not make sense to go over there um and uh, i didn't know what to do to be frank and then slowly you know i started realizing okay so you, this is this is a time which we can utilize uh for doing other things rather than you know the regular things that you're doing and i am guilty of you know being one of those procrastinators who's always like oh i don't have time right now i will do this project later i will do this project later but covid 19 pushed me into you know taking up a lot of projects which i always had in the back of my mind like for example the podcast itself such conversations matter the first time i had this idea was in 
that is the first time i created a facebook page for you know uh, like if, if somebody is talking it should he, he or she should talk with purpose uh, you know have something important to say so that it can make a make an impact but that was it in <laughs> that was in 2013 in 2016 i i for the first time uh, you know realized i was in denmark that time that i should start making videos um, because i was consuming a lot of content in denmark the internet speed was amazing over there as compared to india so i was like why can't i do something like this and then you know cut to 2020 and finally i'm able to do it um apart from that so april we started working on our projects uh may i started the podcast i started uh, building a couple of projects uh, for some other companies like pratham test prep where aman also uh, you know is a consultant and uh, last month was a particularly difficult month for me because uh, my father had uh, you know gotten ill because of viral fever it was not you know, corona but it was scary as hell and uh, so most of the month went into that but he's fine now he's he's recovering very well and uh, we are all glad and grateful um i just i just want to you know and i keep on hearing news now about other friends of mine who's who are going through a similar situation where one of their relatives is facing some kind of illness and some of them are corona positive some of them are not and the rest of the country is also going through a very very bad phase so i just wish that uh, wish them luck and wish them all the best uh, you know what i'm trying to say is we are all in this together whether we accept it or not no matter how much we try to protect ourselves uh, it's going to be here india is already i think it's going to reach number 2 spot in the world now overtaking brazil in a couple of days and we have to live with it I and i think we've already done that i think it was yeah. in uh, now today's newspaper that we've already oh uh, yeah so we are all be there and it has, it has more or less become like a crazy game i mean you don't know right uh, really going out it, it is always there in your head right whether you are whatever you are doing whether that is right or wrong whether you should be doing it or not you are always questioning yourself and then uh, again and and uh, sort of i mean uh, you know you are the right person and uh, i i believe you you did a excellent uh, uh, you know uh, chat on this uh, mental health right and yeah. i am also talking to a lot of friends uh, who are now just saying it right that they they are feeling uh, you know emotionally they are they are not right right up there and there are lots of news also uh coming out how uh, emotionally people are being affected yeah so so, so you're right i mean all of us are uh, you know facing this hopefully uh, with, uh, like you know maybe a new vaccination is the only thing now what what can save uh, all of us from this like emotional uh, we call trauma is more than yeah. physical it is now getting emotional also i right. yeah i absolutely agree i mean i think uh... will the vaccine come when will it come i mean i don't want to speculate on any of those things i think all of right. us have access to news and we can figure it out for ourselves um but if we do not do the things that you know corona uh, covid 19 has showed us that these are the things uh, we lack in our society all right it doesn't really matter if you are coming from a developed country or a middle income economy like india or a, you know underdeveloped country this thing has put everything in perspective and if we do not take any action right now whether it is mental health education sanitation healthcare anything any of those things then then we are just a bad 
species, I would say. <laughs> we are just bad. <laughs> so, so I, I, have, I have one more interesting uh, question for you. And I was wondering and I was asking this question myself. And I know you are like you know, so busy with so many things, right? You are doing your uh, videos. You are doing your... your having interviews with some newspaper, you are helping students as well. So you like, you know, and then suddenly you have that much time. What do you think? How is life going to change post this? I mean, we, we all understand that this is a tough phase, but I was just wondering that getting back to normal will be a new challenge for all of us maybe, right? That uh, whatever time we have now and whatever things we are doing, and suddenly to say that, okay, now let's, get back to that angle. Do you think that will happen or it's a, it, it's like, in a way, it is something permanent that has happened. Right? That, uh, you know, the way we think or the way the society thinks, right? Do you think there's a, there's an impact on that as well? So, I would like to take an example from the Spanish flu of 1918. All right. Because that is the closest pandemic which, uh, which other people compare COVID-19 with. Um, yes, it was a great, uh, you know, pandemic at that time, the entire world was affected and very few people know this, but the maximum deaths at that time also happened in India only. It did not happen in Europe. It did not happen in the US so much as it happened in India. All right. And the, this time also, we are looking at the same thing. Like India, as you said, has reached number two in the uh, world uh, with the number of cases and it's just going out of hand. I just hope that people realize those mistakes and don't, you know, start recovering from them. As far as the society is concerned, the society is not going to change. Humans are uh, very resilient, uh, not only in their willpower to, you know, survive, but also very, very resilient or stubborn in changing. So I don't think people are going to change at all, like very little, because uh, somehow deep inside in our society, we have kind of, you know, let go of certain responsibilities and duties, which all of us had to, you know, share. Like, especially in India, like post-independence, uh, there is this entire thought process of uh, among people where they just say, okay, so like, you know, azadi mil gai hai, we've gotten independence, nobody can say anything to me, so I will spit anywhere I want. Or I will drive on the wrong side of the road, all right? Uh, I'm not saying that is, uh, you know, a function of uh, independence only or getting uh, uh, independence. It's 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 definitely a function. It's definitely a thing which exists still in our society, uh, whether we get educated or not. Uh, how we behave outside India and how we behave within India is a very very different aspect. I think uh, Anurag has lived in the US. He, he can uh, also agree to those facts. And Amanzar, whenever you've traveled abroad, you can see the same changes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. That's that's uh, one of the things. I don't think the society is going to change. Ye, the, all this, uh, you know, social distancing will probably remain for another year, um, but we'll get back to it. Right. And the pra pragmatic experience also talks about the same thing. Hmm. I think uh, people who have lived longer than us, who have seen a lot of things more than us, uh, also are of the same view that eventually when things start getting back to normal, when coronaviruses uh, totally wiped out of this world. When things start moving towards the normal, things will start also moving towards the previous day. And uh, the way people have been doing certain innovations uh, that have helped during coronavirus, some of those innovations will 
probably be gone because there will be no need for those innovations in those times. Uh, but the one thing, uh, there are still, there are still a lot of positives that have come out of this pandemic and uh, especially related to environmental causes. Our environment is one of the cleanest. It has been in centuries and you must remember that time uh, in Chalandar, Punjab, there was a news that uh, a mountain range was visible from the terrace roofs of everyone's homes. That was simply a and similar uh, you know, things happened in a lot of cities across India and I'm pretty sure across the world where the population is high and the pollution is high because of that. Uh, but certainly if talking about the positive areas, uh, certainly one of the positive things that came out of this pandemic, at least uh, something that relates to your life is this podcast where it, which brings value to conversations that should be done in the open and uh, some of the topics that are not meant to be discussed uh, behind closed doors. I totally believe in this concept, but uh, you talked about the journey. You talked about, you traced it back to 2013 and then uh, came back to 2020. Uh, but I have two questions for you. What took you so long? And secondly, how has, now that you have started already and you have, including this episode, uh, you have completed 25 episodes. How does it feel like? How has the, has the journey been like? Being a YouTuber and all that, uh, starting from scratch. Okay. So that's a very interesting question, uh, especially for me. Uh, in 2013, I was, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a career consultant and, uh, you know, uh, why and how I became a career consultant uh, has been quite interesting for me because... Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, in our time, at least, uh, I come from an army background. My dad was in the army. Um, in my family, both from my mother's side and my father's side, uh, there have been very few engineers. All right. So uh, one of my aunts, uh, two sons, they had done engineering before me, just before me. And uh, uh, they, but they did not, uh, you know, get into uh, those, uh, the IITs or NITs and all those colleges. So I was probably the first one. And then after me my, uh, was my brother, uh, you know, who got into, uh, got a decent merit and we got into NIT. I also had, uh, you know, calls from Bits Pilani and other colleges. But, and that is where the problem is. Um, nobody in my family knew how to guide me. So even though, uh, you know, uh, I had better calls from uh, better ranked colleges and whatever, but I ended up in NIT Jalandhar. Not that I regret it. Because then I got to meet Anurag and so many of amazing people over there and we did some crazy things in college. Um, but that always had was somewhere in the back of my mind that, you know, the decision making is, is problemsome. There is something wrong with the decision making. I completed my engineering. After engineering, obviously, I wanted to earn some money and enjoy my life. So I uh, joined an American company for two and a half years. After that, I realized this is not what I want to do. And there is this. So, you know, in life... Um, I, I believe that certain people are able to live with the things which are happening outside their life. All right. Uh, they are able to live with, uh, in comfort with the fact that, okay, uh, it's okay. That problem exists. I know it exists, but there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, so let me just continue with it. So I'm not saying that everyone has to become an activist over here, but some people are very, you know, easily able to do that. I was not able to right. do that. I was like, the, and so that everybody knows, yeah. <laughs> uh, since uh, Saurabh has already mentioned, we went to the same college. Yes. Uh, Saurabh uh, was the first one in college to start a newsletter 
to take that initiative because he was very passionate about uh, doing you know uh, propagating good things the good bits uh, everyone was tied up with their exams the studies the work, the, the pressure and then the placement pressure and all of that uh, amidst that saurabh had this path about uh, disseminating good knowledge yes and uh, you know you and i shared this uh, uh, trait together that we were always into some something that concerned with knowledge in any form and saurabh as a a big big consumer of books novels technical and non technical both so he had this uh, passion about doing something uh, about the rest of the uh, students as well so his was the first newsletter in nit jalandhar uh, i'm not sure what is the status uh, you know once it's we not it, it's not a good it, status <laughs> it's not a good status but i remember that it was at least functional for a couple of years yeah right uh, but uh, you know hats off to you and those are the you know initiatives that make you uh, more compassionate or uh, make you empathize with the world matters uh, and uh, you know this is this is what uh, makes a person an educator mm-hmm. i believe educator being everyone can be a teacher but being an educator is something that you have to own and this is these are the things that we take into that education so just a fun fact right so sort of and one more thing so uh, because we are uh, now talking about your uh, engineering story so from engineering and now we are talking about being an educator but in between i, I guess there was another chapter right you you went on to do your masters in psychology i believe yes right? so, so so how <laughs> how did that happen right so you so you always wanted to get to the education part but how come from engineering i mean i mean if like I, i'm a lawyer and if i hear this from someone that there is a guy from nit jalandhar working with some mnc and then uh, he left that and he went on to do a masters in this right so so that's that's very very interesting right so so what exactly happened there so as as i was i mean after working in that american company for two and a half year i realized this is something i have to do something about this i mean i couldn't sleep at nights literally and it was you know this really i i tell this story to my uh, students also in a lot of webinars that i do uh it was you know noida in the middle of july you can imagine what kind of weather it is it's 43 degrees and humid <laughs> and you know one day one fine day i just went out of the company stood in the middle of the road uh doing nothing because i was numb completely numb as to you know why am i doing this what am i doing i mean i'm almost 24 and but why am i doing this now and that's when i decided to leave uh, engineering and the, so the next question was obviously what next to do in fact my project manager was pretty angry with me because she was like you guys this generation you guys are so you know uh, impulsive you just resign whenever you want to and i and and she was like but what are you going to do she was not at all you know uh, she was kind of uh, what would i say a little protective of me as well so i told her don't worry about it i found a startup uh, in gurgaon where i want to work that startup is into psychometric assessments they want to do high you know help high school students all across the country and that is exactly what i want to do as well so when i joined that startup i mean joining the startup itself was a very interesting story i had to fake uh, my way into the startup to get an interview because they were not hiring so uh, i i first of all got their email id from their website i sent them an email that i want to do an interview of you i am from some college newsletter <laughs> the newsletter that we started <laughs> so i got into an interview the interview lasted for 3 hours 
one and a half hours uh, you know the founder took my interview and the next one and a half hours i was taking his interview and and we found okay there is there's a lot to do together and that's when i started masters in psychology in fact uh, one of my first mentors was a director in that company her name is dr ritishri mishra she used to work for career launcher also so you might have heard of her aman sir um and uh, you know so under her i was able to uh, you know learn a lot about psychology completed my masters in psychology in 3 years igno allows you to do 3 years so as i said procrastinator so and by the way by the way saurabh i still remember that day hmm. when we met at uh, in gurgaon galeria market right? yes. when you told me about that program that you were doing psychology and i was like what like <laughs> <laughs> an engineer yeah, yeah. Psychology. how the hell can that I mean, trust me, it was as surprising for me as it was for you. I was like, okay, why am I here? And then, I mean, I could understand students. I could talk to them, but uh, you know, Doctor Idrisi said, you know what, the school ecosystem in India doesn't recognize you if you do not have the right qualifications. And I said, okay, this is the best opportunity then. So that's when I undertook master in psychology. in that uh, i was able to do an internship uh, at the dr gangaram hospital uh, sir gangaram hospital in delhi which is one of the biggest in north india uh, under the supervision of dr aarti uh, anand who was the uh, guest uh, at in such conversations matter the first episode and the third episode and she has been very kind and she has always supported me and always encouraged me so i through that uh, ma in psychology i was able to discover so many other things anurag your question was there why did it take me so long right from 2013 to till now to do it so i think uh, you know there is always this uh, discomfort or there is always this lack of confidence which comes in you when you keep switching things so from engineering Uh, where i just spent two and a half years and i just started to understand what you know uh, enterprise coding level was just started to understand i left it then i moved into psychometrics uh, which i had never done professionally before and you know in 2013 when i was doing the social media marketing for the company i created my own page and at that time the first idea came that okay i need to talk with purpose um i was not at all confident about my psychometrics knowledge as well so i think uh, that discomfort definitely comes when you're switching things and you've not spent a lot of time in them right so you kind of uh, start thinking okay whether what i'm i'm going to say is it going to be valuable enough so you have the lack of confidence uh, and so many other things so that was one of the reasons uh, in 2016 in denmark when i decided to start making videos uh, came back to india and you know that was my primary goal in 2017 to start making videos and start talking about important things but then again certain other projects came in line and i was like okay okay videos will make later and so on and so forth so uh, it never really happened in 2020 i mean this particular mic is is not from india this one i bought in japan so last year when i was in japan i knew i had some time on my hands and i said i have to make videos and one of the reasons i keep telling myself is i don't have the important uh, the right gear the right uh, you know equipment so i spent money <laughs> i bought this mic i have a light over here and etc but even then i did not make videos in japan it was because of covid 19 only so as i said i am a i am a bit of a procrastinator when it comes to these things <laughs> so, so but finally i'm a, here it's a mix of waiting for the right time and some bit of procrastination i i guess so <laughs> okay and how does it feel now now that you are 25 episodes Uh, old like, absolutely oh yes 
Oh, so that that's where I also wanted to answer Aman sir's uh, question initially, which he asked, you know, what do you think is the future of, of this? Um, I've always believed uh, since 2016, when I left Copenhagen, Copenhagen is a small little town. It has the same population as Jalandhar. All right. It's very comfortable, very, you know, cute little town. And I loved it over there. And I started hating big cities. Like I already, I did not like Chennai a lot. I did not like Mumbai a lot anyway. But then I start, stopped liking Delhi NCR also. I was like, no, this is this is not it. I have to live in a smaller city, you know, take out time for myself. It's just healthier. And so that's the other aspect. Like uh, my brother is a complete, you know, corporate guy. Uh, he works in uh, Amazon. Uh, so is my sister-in-law. So they're both in Bangalore. So it's very difficult for them to actually, you know, make a decision to come to Jalandhar and work. But I can make that decision. So I've been in favor of work from home since 2016. And now I'm finally getting the chance. Um, this way, I'm able to be close to my parents, be able to enjoy small town life with the help of technology, be able to do very, very good things, not at a local scale, but at a global scale now. So so uh, when you say, you know, how has the journey been for these 25 episodes? This is the 25th episode and this is completely your doing. This is not my doing. So <laughs> it has been amazing. I mean, I cannot tell you this is, uh, so Anurag talked about the newsletter that I started in college. It, the name of the newsletter was Caps Lock. Uh, we created a wonderful team of very passionate people. I felt the same kind of energy uh, when I felt when I was creating Caps Lock. The same kind of energy I feel right now when I do my podcast. So after, you know, almost 13 years in the world, I've been, you know, feeling the same kind of vibes. So that is that is uh, what I feel now. And that is why I want to continue this in a more uh, productive fashion also. Little bit about the podcast. Uh, I have decided to uh, kind of conclude this podcast, uh, podcast season one with 25 episodes. Because I want to reflect on what I've done so far. I want to write about it uh, because I've seen a lot of people, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the podcast has been going great. I have been putting in little effort and it has been going great. I've not spent any money on marketing, but last month, the podcast videos or the podcast related posts on Facebook uh, reached more than uh, around 11,000 people. And I have only 1400 people in my Facebook. So it reached 11,000 people. That's, that's an amazing achievement for me. I mean, because I had hardly thought that maybe 200, 300 people will be interested in this, you know, <laughs> but right. It has reached a lot of people, so I'm really happy for it. And towards the end of the year, uh, I will be creating a plan for the next season, which will, which I will start in the new year, 2021. I al already started creating a list of guests. I'm going to do more research. Uh, there are more podcasts that I have I have started, uh, you know, listening to now. One of my favorites is uh, the Seen and the Unseen, which is I think India's most favorite, uh, India's uh, most uh, popular podcast when it comes to you know serious discussions long form interviews one hour two hour interviews is uh, done by this very very uh, highly acclaimed uh, journalist then another one is in the field by these wonderful two ladies in um, bangalore they talk about you know the social development sector and what is actually happening on ground so i've started listening to those learning from them and yeah <laughs> it's it's going well it's going really well very nice sort of, uh, sorry before aman pitches in with the next set of questions just one last question about this topic. Hmm. Uh, we have talked about the Universal Native Project uh, in some previous videos. Uh, when you talked about 
the small town thing that you are able to do amazing things at the same global scale that people do in large cities like new york or london or maybe delhi or gurgaon right isn't it the what the fruit of democratization of information about how do you feel about that you know we talk about democratizing information making things accessible to everyone but isn't this how it will feel like once this is done with once this is all achieved isn't this can, can we see this as one aspect of uh, the journey or the mission absolutely i mean um so i remember this uh, i had a conversation in 2016 again in denmark uh, with the husband of my mentor from the university and uh, after a couple of glasses of wine obviously so <laughs> so i was just talking to him and i said uh, he was asking me about india because he was also a very curious person and he talked about uh, so what what exactly is happening in india india was all over the news that time the fastest growing major economy in the world you know by ppp we had already reached uh, the second or third spot i think i'm i'm getting a little confused here but any which way so we were you know uh, shooting for the stars and everything and uh, the modi wave was there everyone was recognizing the power of uh, you know this great prime minister or something and he asked me what is happening and i told him that yes everyone is moving to big cities all right so you know delhi mumbai bangalore chennai kolkata hyderabad these are the big six then after that you know you have some other five six cities like ahmedabad lucknow jaipur uh guwahati these these cities are coming up big and then you have you know chandigarh uh, and uh, certain other cities so there are 15 20 cities which are becoming economic hubs for a country which has how many 6 lakh villages so it it just sounds a little bit weird to me because if people from all these villages are going to come to these 15 20 clusters that means it is going to be very bad living conditions so you know you go to mumbai and there are areas in mumbai which are costlier than uh, areas in london or tokyo but when you go to london or tokyo i mean the kind of facilities that they offer mumbai doesn't have those facilities so even if you can uh, you know afford a flat in one of the posh localities in mumbai you will still have the smell of the you know garbage or you still will have all the dirty scenery around you so i told him that it is not sustainable and that's exactly what china was also doing because china realized that again i mean i'm not saying beijing and shanghai are not growing they're still growing like crazy but they are also investing in developing all these other sezs all right across the country they are i mean everyone knows about china and their ghost towns but that's what they do because they have realized that this is a problem with urbanization that's what i want to tell everyone in india i know people who are uh, you know i know people from jammu who are not even comfortable living in chandigarh and they have gone back to jammu and uh, samba district just to be home and they are able to manage their work because of internet they are happier over there and if covid situation has told us anything it is this major cities they are always at higher risk as compared to smaller cities or smaller places when you know such a pandemic happens if you are able to manage your work from home and i think i mean i, I is no point telling you guys i'm just saying this for the everyone else who is listening because both of you also moved away from ncr and are working in their respective hometowns right so that is the future because if we do not push in circular economy the ideas of circular economy it is not going to happen now coming to the other question of democratization of uh, you know information 
So, if you look at our country, and if you have some radical progressive ideas, all right, people will probably ask you, where are you from? <laughs> right? And the moment you say, I am from Bangalore, Delhi, Chennai, Mumbai, Pune, Hyderabad, they'll be like, okay, we understand. We get it. In Punjab, if you say you are from Chandigarh, they'll be like, okay, we get it. They will not accept your ideas. But they will be accepting <laughs> the fact that, okay, you're not like us. Why? Because these urban areas, they just have a better, uh, you know, progressive culture. That is where most of the innovation happens. So people are used to these things. If you talk about Jalandhar today, and Anurag, I think you might agree with this. Who are the leaders in Jalandhar? How many people do we know? There may be a couple of politicians, couple of industrialists, one odd sportsman and one odd kalakar or, you know, artist. Too few. Too few from Jalandhar. Too few. But that's about it. And it's a city of a million people. I mean, you don't have innovators from here. It has one of the largest universities in North India, which is lovely professional university. And it's an international university or having people from 40 different countries. Then it has a national uh, level institute uh, called NIT Jalandhar, uh, which recently has created so many innovations. But who, how many do we know? Probably nobody. And that just sounds weird. If you go to Europe, Copenhagen is the center of innovation in Scandinavia. It's as big as Jalandhar. <laughs> the entire country has 55 lakh people. So this is another thing that I want to do. Um, in fact, I'm involved in a cup. I'm, I'm getting involved in a couple of projects where we are focusing on Punjab now. We are trying to, uh, you know, raise issues like gender sensitization. We are trying to raise issues like, uh, you know, uh, sexual harassment at workplaces. Because yes, it has reached Delhi, it has reached the corporate houses of Mumbai and Bangalore. It is going to take decades to reach this place if people don't do anything about this. So, so that's my view. I, I hope I have answered your question, Anurag. I didn't talk about Universal Native. I think let's talk about it in the more in the <laughs> following I'm, question. I'm, I'm sure Aman is going to come to that point mm -hmm. sooner or later. Right, right. So I, uh, I was, I mean, your philosophy, right? So, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about a few things and then you have this uh, interesting philosophy of uh, fear and convenience. So what is, what is, that all about i mean uh, what right. was the thought behind that so fear and convenience is i mean i've always been interested in these uh, psychological and sociological philosophical questions existential questions if you if you might um and i did a couple of episodes with uh, one of our batchmates from college also his name is uh, mr narendra joshi he's currently serving in the indian railway services so while studying for upsc and all these civil services he just read everything about political philosophy and I had shared the same question with him that this is what I believe in, fear and convenience. So fear and convenience is, he told me that it is actually just another form of uh, utilitarianism. Now utilitarianism is a, is a post-Renaissance concept wherein, uh, you know, the couple of philosophers, they say that human beings, what they do is, uh, there are certain motivators behind whatever they do. And those motivators are pretty materialistic. Materialistic in the sense that you will do something probably because you're scared 
that your boss is going to say something your parents might uh, say something your girlfriend or wife or you know your partner might say something your children might say something to you so there is this fear all right or there is a fear of external factors like uh, you know pandemic oh if i go out tomorrow to have a holiday i might just get corona and then so many other things that is the fear factor and religion also i guess religion as well so exactly religion all these things all these societal structures right they they put in a lot of fear inside us um so when we don't have that fear for example we are all you know sitting in our comfortable chairs in our homes we know we do not have to fear anything right now we are safe we are protected why will you do something now because there is no fear so that other motivator is convenience all right you will do something because it is convenient for you to do it like for example we could have clearly you know disagreed on the fact now let's not do this interview today let's do it somewhere else because you didn't feel like it or you think it's not important enough that's convenience right um so utilitarianism talks about whether uh, whatever human beings do it's basically to relieve pain there is some pain in you all right and i call it fear so to relieve some pain or to get pleasure okay so on those lines i mean i'm not uh, i'm not an expert on utilitarianism but that is what i feel that most of us basically do things because of two reasons either you're scared of it or the results of it or it is okay for you it's convenient enough so you will do it for example you know we we keep on uh, learning whenever we are when we were younger in our moral science books we would learn help the needy help the poor help the blind cross the road right that's what we have read and it is it actually comes from a very privileged uh, point of view but any which way that is not our problem <laughs> that was that curriculum's problem hopefully that will change um how many times have we actually helped the poor if we were not feeling up to it if you were going to office and you were getting late for it and you could clearly see somebody is in trouble all right how many times did you not over analyze it oh maybe that person is a fraud or oh, where will the money go or oh, these people are like this and we just you know went out and helped that person how many times we do it very few times why do we do it very few times the you if you analyze all that situation you will see that your mood was nice you were in a good mood that day you probably had extra money on you all right you probably felt that uh, if i do this some good karma might come my way or there might be some other reasons yes those reasons are good uh, you know ways of explaining to yourself why you did it but ultimately it's just convenience so so that's what my philosophy is uh, and that is what i tell my mentees also and whenever i have to you know uh, talk to certain people who i want to work with i kind of try and analyze it from their situation although this philosophy is not foolproof obviously uh, because you know when it comes to family how are you going to help uh, are you going to help your father or mother even if it is not convenient for you even if it is uh, you know you're scared of the outcome yes or no you will still do it probably right so uh, or well, let's say you know when there is a situation like uh, there are two people having the same kind of problem and you have to help only one of them you can help only one of them who will you choose and why so when those kind of questions come in you know those ethical moral questions come in your mind then this philosophy does not hold a lot of water but i still believe that most of the human beings are utilitarian in their uh, thought process they they follow they do things basically because of two reasons fear or convenience <laughs>
excellent excellent so i mean uh, to, to add something to that i guess uh, uh, when you were saying right that, that the thoughts that will come to your head that maybe he's a wrong person or maybe you know uh, uh, this is wrong or right and there is there is another thought and that again is convenience that when we think that maybe someone else will do it because i'm in a hurry right so we we tell ourselves right because there are so many people standing there and maybe that is something which which we are not able to do when when uh, it's for our family right because then we know that it's it's only me right i have to do it but then in that case looking at those 50 people standing there at least i think that's what happens with most of the people ki koi aur hai right and there are so many of them and we just like go ahead and we just yeah we just want to forget that property yeah, i excellent uh, yeah. I, i agree right uh, to a lot of what you are saying i also noticed i, I really like your uh, uh, your example where you talked about that uh, charity thing like uh, how and when we want to help people a lot of times depends on our motivation our mood right especially our mood uh, when we are feeling very good about ourselves those are generally the times at least i have seen we uh, shy away from because we think that okay i think uh, my life is good and maybe that person is not actually in need because of 10 different stories i've read in the newspaper about mm-hmm. that person being a fraud or something like that uh, but then when we are feeling lonely or when we are feeling low that is the time we empathize with people and try to do something for them but is this something this feeling of uh, helping others uh, is there a formula of sustaining this feeling and uh, somehow applying that into our system so that more and more people can uh, do good to the society so what do you think about that so to again repeat myself in formal terms sorry how do we do this especially with our current system structures so that's a very important question actually and uh, you know there is there is no straight answer to this uh, the situation is highly complex uh especially in a country like india and i've been repeating that multiple times and in fact with aman's uh, podcast also i had uh, talked about how plural and diverse our country is and you know just maybe one legal framework is not enough uh maybe we need to innovate so i'll take examples uh which you know a lot of people can understand so that you know the conversation doesn't go very abstract here uh let's talk about to you know so i've been doing this research i mean not it's not really research research but it's it's comparative analysis that i've done so scandinavia it it leads the world in so many areas finland is the best in education denmark is the happiest country norway is the richest country it gives you you know so much money the moment your baby is born and so many other things um sweden is going completely out of the you know coal and oil thing right now and so so scandinavia leads the world in so many ways what is scandinavia it's a small area a lot of climate uh, you know very extreme climate very little population as compared to the rest of the world uh, very fewer uh, very few resources as compared to the rest of the world all right but now they are the richest people so what did they really have if they when they started off what they did was they they figured out that it's it's basically us right it's it's us against the world if we do not help each other we do not support each other it's it's uh, so this is i mean nobody really has talked about this but uh, in formal terms the scandinavians probably will not agree with this theory as well but this is what my analysis is 
uh, in fact in danish there is a saying which uh, and there's a statue also in copenhagen related to that it it basically says that the person with the broadest chest all right the broadest chest or the broadest shoulders should carry the others with him should hold more bo- uh, you know burden of the society because they basically realize all all are humans but all are different and not everyone will be able to do the same thing that the other person can do so if you are able to do something but you still have energy left then it is your responsibility to help those who do not have enough energy or enough you know uh, power to do so so that is one part of it now if i take the example so their their uh, you know system is very social socialist in nature yet uh, they focus a lot on innovation in fact there are a couple of documentaries when they compare denmark with us and they talk about the fact that how you can become richer in denmark as compared to the us because the american dream does not exist anymore basically so if you go to america right now it's very expensive it's not easy to become a billionaire over there whatever it is uh, the other aspect is japan which is also a highly civilized society highly developed advanced society and i spent a year over there last year as well if you go to japan i mean we were literally spoiled by the behavior of the people over there the people are so nice they are so thankful and so respectful with with you all the time all right i'm not saying they're not like uh, regular humans but it's it's the etiquette that they have developed over centuries respecting every human being irrespective of where or uh, he or she comes from because japan again if you look at the country barren land island isolated it was there were resources were always low in that country that is why it had constant wars i mean you can read about its history from the 4th century uh, ad onwards it had constant wars and only in the later part of you know 17th century they started realizing this when the us uh, you know there's a history component to it when the us forcefully opened them and meiji restoration and the people can read about it and uh, that's when they realized that you know we have to uh, create a culture for ourselves where in they absorb some newer things from the west like their clothing like their uh, you know way of doing business uh, their focus on science and technology but at the same time they kept a lot of other aspects within themselves the etiquette uh, the behavior with each other for example they have a, they, they have this uh, you know culture that in a tea house so they have these tea houses uh, where they used to negotiate with other people like two uh, leaders of opposite clans or you know two chieftains who are basically enemies but whenever they had to negotiate they would be invited to this neutral tea house and in the tea house you are supposed to keep your katana or your sword and all the weapons outside so when you come inside the tea house you're not here to fight you're here to negotiate so those are some of the aspects that they have kept inside them i'm not saying japan doesn't have its own problems or scandinavia doesn't have its own problems but they are highly advanced people look up to those countries and see what is right over there now if you compare these countries with with you know uh, another perspective the social perspective first of all religion does not hold a lot of value over there it sounds very very you know contradictory uh, but they are entrenched in traditions danish the danes love their traditions of their pudding of their liquor and so on japanese love their traditions of liquor and food and everything but they're not really religious they do not really believe in god in fact in sweden i think it's 80% atheists or something and the christianity also is is 
different uh, is a lutheran christianity which is uh, mostly prominent in denmark so uh, in japan it had been buddhist it had been uh, shintoism zen philosophy so many others so they took all the good things from them and now people just choose what to do if they want a christian wedding they'll probably you know use some of the christian traditions they'll they still do a traditional buddhist japanese wedding and so on and so forth so first of all religion doesn't exist over there everyone has education they have focused always focused on good quality education and they have provided that good quality education in their public school systems really high quality good quality education i'm not saying their education systems are perfect but they work everyone gets education and good quality education in fact in japan i mean japan has the highest number of you know uh, per cap per 1000 uh, per 10000 people they have the highest number of uh, students coming from a science or stem background in the world then uh, on top of that there is just the third thing is tolerance the third thing is tolerance for everyone you you go to scandinavia today they'll be the most helpful people you've met all right you go to japan they are the most helpful people you've met it's just tolerance of other human beings i'm not saying they are accepting human beings no because every human being is similar you know our minds are similar we just look different but the levels of tolerance in those countries is amazing so these three things are really important now you compare it like i'm just doing a comparative analysis like if you compare it with a country like the us which is the most powerful country in the world it has still has the biggest economy in the world right um religion plays a big part in their politics and because of that they are not able to you know just make decisions on certain key issues okay one of them being guns so <laughs> which is just stupid um their education system they spend the highest amount of money in the world on their education system they still don't uh, they're still in the early 30s or something in in ranking overall now coming to india comparing it with india all right let's let's talk about every part of india um sort of yeah before you into india i think uh, you rightly said that most of us look up to uh, these leading countries such as america and uk and france probably uh, and we try to emulate their cultures not just emulate their cultures the governments try to emulate their policies a lot of our constitution has been borrowed by those western countries in particular these countries that we have just mentioned uh, but it's a surprise that we overlook these otherwise more successful countries if success can be defined in terms of happiness and richness of life then i'm pretty sure that we should have looked up to these countries rather than those false idols that we talk uh, but before we move on to india i think the one thing uh, i have a question about personally mm. and i would like to hear your thoughts on is that uh, do you really think if hypothetically speaking if britishers didn't rule india mm. right if we were to continue with the culture that we originally had mm. and uh, we didn't have these population issues would india be a different india today so uh, probably you can answer your question first and then try to apply that context to this and i would be very interested in knowing the answer your your thought process on that so that's actually a very interesting question uh, and in fact i think that provides the right starting point also for uh, whatever i was going to say 
So, uh, in in uh, you know a couple of broadcasts ago, I interviewed uh, Mr. Priyank uh, Sharma, who's a PhD uh, you know candidate uh, in NEPA. NEPA is a very unique university, National Institute of Education uh, Planning and Administration. It is the only university I think in the world which has been uh, you know funded by the UN. All right, and it's in India. So it, it was in 1961, I think, which it, it was established in, and UN basically wanted India to create a new education system which works for the developing world. Right didn't really happen that way but any which way so he's he's doing his PhD over there and he pointed out something very important he said uh, if you uh, so there was this research done recently I, I again I'm bad with uh, these research books and papers and people but the research basically talks about that if you look at 17th century India or even 18th century India all right the literacy rate amongst Indians was very high I'm talking about the Indian education systems, the original Indian education system, not before Macaulay destroyed it all and everything. The literacy rate in Indians was very high, whether it was through madrasas in Islam or through gurukuls in Hinduism or through, you know, the sacred tribal ways of doing things in indigenous communities, doesn't matter. But the literacy rate was quite high. So Indians were already literate, all right? Um... The only thing which was dividing us was the plurality because we never considered India as, you know, this big giant uh, place with different climates, different lands, different people who look different, talk different, eat different. As one country, it is just hard to imagine. The definition of a nation does not fit a country like India or for that matter, a country like Nigeria in uh, Africa because it is equally diverse, right? So nobody really thought of it from that perspective. Now, when you look at this land in the 17th century from outside, oh my God, so there are small, small, small kingdoms everywhere. People are really literate. They have a highly developed culture, highly developed civilization, which has absorbed things uh, from the ancient Brahmanical or Sanatan Dharam way of ways. Uh, and they have absorbed things, you know, uh, from Buddhism. Uh, they've absorbed things from China, Fahin and all these people. They've absorbed things from Islam. Like if you, you know, we, we talk about Islam a lot, but not, not everyone talks about it, uh, you know, uh, comprehensively. Islam has been very, very peaceful when it comes to Southern India or you talk about Southeast Asia. Islam has migrated to these places very peacefully as compared to, let's say, you know, uh, Central Asia or Northern India or even uh, Eastern India. Right. So there is this huge land which is generally peaceful has a lot of riches. These guys don't attack anybody else because they have everything over here. Fertile land, forests, uh, resources, uh, coastline, great weather. You don't even need to wear clothes. They don't need to attack anybody else. And the only thing that they could uh, think of was, if we have to capture this land, we have to do certain things which are inhuman. Probably divide and conquer, first of all. Secondly, subdue them, completely subdue them. How will you make a population which is 10 times your population, your slave, right? If you keep on dividing them, keep on creating issues between them. So that's what they did. Because they had, you know, better quality machine power, they were able to do that also. So if the Britishers had not come in here, probably some other European nation might have come here. I mean, not a lot of people know, I mean, obviously, we know that the Dutch Indies, they, you know, Dutch were one of the first people to come here. Portuguese were the first, the Dutch came in, the French came in, the Danish had come in and set up some colonies in Tamil Nadu. 
the Danes from Scandinavia, like probably the farthest country to come here because everyone wanted to have a base over here, but the British were ultimately successful. So if the British were not able to do it, probably we would have been doing this in French right now. You know, when we talk about India, and I said uh, in my podcast with Amansar also that we probably need a more innovative, uh, you know, legal framework. Uh, just in the morning, Amansar, I had shared a, a TED talk also with you, wherein this law firm in Delhi, what they're doing is they're making infographics out of contracts. So there's a 250-page contract, but they're reducing it to, you know, uh, just 20 pages by using infographics. And that has increased the sales of a lot of companies. So that is the kind of innovation we need. now. India needs to learn, yes, from Scandinavia, from Japan, from the US, no doubt about it. In fact, the current national education policy is basically based, the higher education uh, policy, in fact, is primarily based on the US uh, higher education policy. All right, it it basically takes it from there. Why? Because the US uh, follows both the British higher education policy and the German higher education policy. So it's a good combination of both. And those are considered very, very good. So we are just taking things from there. India also needs to learn at the same time from Costa Rica, which is probably the most progressive country in the world right now as far as climate uh, you know, uh, decisions are concerned. India also needs to learn from Rwanda, which in 1994 had the worst genocide in human history and now is the fastest growing, most, uh, you know, progressive country in Africa. Beating South Africa in a lot of ways. India also needs to learn uh, from Bhutan, which is actually the happiest country in the world. And Sikkim has learned from Bhutan. So Sikkim is the, pro- uh, the most progressive uh, state in the country today as far as organic cultivation and climate change is concerned. India also needs to learn from Kerala itself. The good things about socialism. Yes, the, the government calls itself uh, communist. The party is called communist. It's not really communist. It's a very democratic socialist government. Because what Kerala has been able to do, no other state has been able to do as well. India also needs to learn from Mizoram, where the literacy rate is more than 95%. And it is not because of the government education systems. It is because the missionaries who set up convent schools over there to teach everyone. And the same story with Kerala and Goa as well. That is why they have high literacy rates. So in Punjab, if I have to implement a model, I will probably not create new things. I will just empower current systems. You know, so for different uh, reasons, we need to look at different places and different people and different states. If we keep looking at the same things and keep thinking, oh, we tried to do that, it didn't happen. Because we were very innovative in the 50s. In the 1950s, we were probably one of the most innovative countries in the world when it comes to socialism or when it comes to nation building, in fact. We created the non-aligned movement, took Yugoslavia, Egypt and some other countries with us. We were the first ones to create the longest constitution in the world because we said we need more, we need more, we need more. We were the first uh, country probably uh, which, you know, uh, had a mixed economy. I mean, I'm not, uh, Pakistan also has a mixed economy, but we were probably the first ones to actually talk about having such a concept at such a large scale. Right. So basically, uh, if I understood correctly, uh, we in India itself, we have a lot of states that are progressive, that have been progressive since a very long time. And certain states that are now on track of being progressive, much 
more than the states that have traditionally been uh, one of the richest states, and uh, especially Punjab, you know, which was the royal state, the state to talk about, the state to live in. But where is Punjab now today? Does it even rank anywhere in India in terms of uh, justice, in terms of lawmaking, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, in terms of sex ratio? I don't think Punjab has. Uh, I, I think Punjab has lost a lot of those things. I, I can I can talk about Punjab itself for twenty minutes if you want. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. and I think that would be a good separate conversation. Mm. Uh, but I think there are a lot of lot of goods that come out of India itself, and we have our role models in, inside India mm. to apply um, and apply uh, across uh, these states that are heavily covered, especially the North Indian states, mm. which have been the uh, if you know at, at some point like Bihar. Avad, which mm. was the confluence of all these big, big literary names in history, and today they are like uh, they're nowhere, right? So I think that's a that's a great example. So there was a story about I think it was Meghalaya or uh, Nagaland, one of those states, mm. where people were standing in a queue. It was a Corona time story. Yes. Uh, for food or something, right? And the uh, the social distancing mm. that they were following was phenomenal. The line was more than a kilometer long, but yes. they were not in any hurry because yes. they knew that our turn would come. And I have read a, a lot of these stories in north northeastern regions where people, when they're driving, even mm. right, even if there are kilometer lamp long jams, people still do not stray away from their own lanes. Even if the next lane is totally empty, right? I have seen a lot of such pictures. So we have much to learn from these things. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, and again, I mean, if we if we look at that, and those examples come from Meghalaya, Mizoram, uh, Manipur, uh, and so many other parts, you know, small small cities in uh, spread all across the northeastern region. Um, you look, you start looking at the underlying factors over there. The northeastern states have generally have higher education. Uh, you know, literacy rate than the rest of the country. They generally have a higher uh, literacy rate. All right. So they have education. All right. Secondly, um, religion. Those states are so diverse. They have so many indigenous communities that you cannot pinpoint a single religion for them. All right. Probably, you know, Manipur, you can say is primarily Hindu uh, because, you know, there used to be a Hindu king over there or Tripura also you have something. But other parts... You will see that they have so many different indigenous cultures. There is very difficult. It's very difficult to pinpoint one religion's you know aspect. So based on religion, there is uh, you know a lot of things we can observe from there and learn from it. So there is greater tolerance coming from there because you know everyone around you is different. Yeah. So tolerance also comes in, and that's the those are the three things that I talked about, right? Uh, religion, you you have to take it uh, in a very moral and ethical sense, but not beyond that, not a fundamentalist uh, approach. Secondly is education, high literacy rate over there. And thirdly is tolerance because everyone around you is different. So you have to live with them. That just makes and, sense. I, you know, I, I still remember I was once, you know, like in second for a month or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing with which, which influenced me or, you know, uh, was that they had, as you were saying, sort of, that they were more concerned about their tradition. They were not that concerned about their religion. I mean, they have a tradition, right? Be it, uh, you know, having beer in the evening, uh, 
we we call it something else right some rice beers but they have like unique traditions and religion is inside the house and outside of it right it was more about that sikhism's tradition that this is our tradition and i think i think that also like you know helps you to have more tolerance because uh, up like at some point you are connected with each other as well right and i, th- I think that's what has happened in the northern side the northern side right we don't have those traditions anymore because we have now changed everything as like you know as far as religion is concerned right we have changed everything to suit our religion i mean if if like uh, if we talk to our grandparents right they will tell us that you know it was the same here as well that we were you know like more about our traditions that a uh, like a hindu wedding or a muslim wedding would primarily be the same except for like the last bit yeah. but then but then yeah over the period of time everything has changed and now we are more concerned about you know the the do's and don'ts and you know that that sphere element you were talking about yes so that's a that's a very great point yeah tradition and the tolerance part of it right that that's so correct uh, avan i i can remember of uh, one such uh, story when i was uh, the first time i went to goa uh goa you you know being the india's one of the most frequented tourist destinations and all that uh the very the first weird thing that i noticed there was and that was not weird in that state was that uh 2:30 pm to 4 pm was reserved yeah. for an <laughs> afternoon siesta no shop ever could be open that time at at the same time uh, it felt like okay people care about their sleeping habits but at the same time you felt frustrated okay i need to shop i'm here just for one day i need to go somewhere and after 5:30 6 everything gets closed anyway right uh, at least the uh, tourist destinations so uh, but i never came to realize uh, whatever shop i went to in the evening almost all the people had this little television on which they were watching uh, football matches right they were so passionate about football every one of them you know more passionate about how in general we indians feel about cricket mm. they could not just miss any shot any minute of the game you know most of the people were like okay so uh, on one hand they were doing something with their hands and they were talking to the you know uh, to the uh, visitors and uh, just so passionate so it's just a culture right as aman rightly pointed out is the culture of place uh, matters a lot and uh, we have a lot to learn from that and uh, the the goan culture i think uh, teaches us to be uh, to have good sleeping habits because if you don't then you cannot live your life with the full potential so those people know to drink <laughs> the right amount and to sleep well and to be passionate about football and by probably doing these things be happy in life right so that is the the thing that i learned from this one visit to goa and that i think changed my perspective you are absolutely right i mean i've lived there i lived in goa for two and a half years yeah almost two and a half years and uh, it was a big change for us as well um but it also makes you you know understand okay their way is different people need to realize this that other people's way of doing things might be different all right uh, they they if you if you you know eat dessert before having dinner they might be wanting to have dinner be- first before having dessert it's 
okay and the end result is same the end result is nutrition right uh, probably this was a bad example but this is this is what it is and this this tolerance you can increase you can have uh, you can see more actually so there is a friend of mine uh, you know um, chinese uh, immigrant parents uh, to canada he's a canadian citizen now and i met him in japan last year and uh, you know so he's also lord into political philosophy and everything and we we started discussing and i was like i have seen this um, we were discussing my recent trip to uh, south korea and taiwan after i came back and everyone was just you know comparing japan with south korea now south korea is also a developed country all right very high uh, per capita income very high uh, you know uh, those development indexes uh, it's it's almost at par with japan in almost all the things the only thing is it has a smaller economy than japan but everything else is uh, you know similar but the people of japan as i said they will make you spoiled all right they will spoil you with their uh, good etiquette and you know respect and everything but when you go back to south korea suddenly you're like you're in a place uh, where you know you will start feeling that oh people are so rude whereas they're not being rude they're just being normal okay <laughs> this is they're just being normal because that's how they are in fact uh, you know south korean koreans generally are considered a little hot blooded they are just different although those countries are so close to each other in fact they are like you know brothers because uh, china japan and korea they are these three uh, brothers who uh, you know don't want to live with each other but also cannot live without each other all right so they have a very similar story to uh, what we have with pakistan um and that's when i started a discussion over there that south korea took a longer amount of time to get to the kind of developed level according to the you know human development indexes as compared to japan japan became developed earlier than south korea the thing that i suggested was if you look at countries which became developed earlier they generally have a higher tolerance level as compared to countries which are which became developed later or are still developing and so on and so forth all right um, canada again a very developed country has much more tolerance much higher tolerance levels than the neighbor most powerful country in the world the us all right and that was a very interesting thing that we you know started discussing and i i'm not sure if there is any you know um current research available on this where there is a correlation between the uh, you know human development index or the the economy or the per capita income with tolerance levels so if if that kind of a research is done sociologically that will be really interesting to see because then you automatically understand that if you want to create peace in the world and by the way we are living in the most peaceful time in the world ever in the human history and one of the reasons you can see that a lot of countries are having a lot of money right now so probably having decent prosperity is the underlying factor for having peace you stop caring about you know your enemies if you have a good life a good quality life the definition of good quality life does not come from the us for them the good quality life might be something else for us the good quality life has to mean something else so if somebody asks me are you are you happy are you having a good quality of life right now i'm having probably a very high quality of life right now because i'm with my family i'm having all the material comforts that i need not the the that i want i don't you know i don't have far on my uh, on the dashboard of my car because probably that i that is something i don't need but i have all the materialistic comforts 
I'm able to do good quality work, the kind of quality work that I uh, want to do, the freedom of expression and, uh, you know, good food and everything else. So these are the aspects of having a good quality life. And if we are able to provide just this much, just this much to the entire population of the world, which is possible because we have money to provide this 10 times over. Probably I'm ex exaggerating a bit, but yes, we have a lot of money already. And people need to realize that this is all that we need. We are happy with this. And that's what is needed. And so um, I, I went a little off track, but I think uh, I hope that made a point. So, and I think uh, that takes us to the next uh, part of our uh, conversation, right? So we talked about Japan, we talked about South Korea, we talked about the states in India. And we talked about the happiness part and quality of life. And that brings us to universal native, right? So, yeah, because again, South Korea, Japan, Canada, uh, and then we talk about India. So what is universal native, right? What are we trying to uh, do there? And what are your thoughts on that, right? How did this, this idea came to you? And again, we, uh, uh, myself and Anurag, right, we are also a part of, of this and like very very excited uh but yeah but how did it occur to you uh that you know something could be done on these times right so in fact i would like to start this by uh something which uh mr robinder and robinder nats as they've uh, said uh on one of the episodes uh, uh he's an international level expert and i had invited him to just to understand you know with the current geopolitical situation china india and so many other things uh, where are we headed and he basically said that, you know, you, you need to have um, the, the, his, his particular way of expressing this is live and let live. That the entire world needs to have this uh, foreign policy of live and let live. All right. Do not interfere in other people's matters. Let them live. You can also live. Do not start things for no reason. And it's, I think it's it's a great way of saying that we don't really need a foreign uh, we need a foreign policy like that. We also need a domestic policy like that. That there are different people in the country. They have the same kind of right that you do. Doesn't you you are not special? They are not special. Why create trouble? Right. Anyways, wait. Taking a cue from there, how do we live and net live? So you know how do we create that sense of equality among people? How does somebody know that that person has the same rights as somebody else? One of the things is lack of knowledge. So uh, our, our fourth uh, comrade, uh, Ashish Rana, in his, uh, you know, second, uh, the second episode I did with him, and he talked about the fact that people just don't know about what the government has to offer to them. So, uh, you know, we have uh, domestic help made she is originally from Gorakhpur and she does not have a ration card. There are 10 members of her family which live in the same two-room uh, setup. And to get a ration card, it's, it's been more than a month now and we are helping her out. We are filling up the forms because most of the forms are in Gurmukhi script. So she can't read it. She can't read anyhow. So, and her Aadhaar card is primarily in English, which is a complete disconnect. I mean... <laughs> So, you know, the language itself is a disconnect, which is a separate topic altogether. Any which way, we are helping her out. She doesn't even know uh, that to having a ration card would have helped her a lot. After Corona, once her income started decreasing, she realized 
that something is going wrong and you know she so uh, there were rumors that the government is giving free grains and free ration and everything till today it's been 6 months almost 6 months since the lockdown started uh, 20 odd days left she hasn't received free grains i don't know where the free grains are going if they're not going to people like her so to get, in order to get free grains and free ration now she has to create a new ration card which is uh, the government has started you know the the, the national ration card scheme or right, which will be valid in all the states and just to get her ration card made it has taken more than 2 months it is still not ready people don't know what is being offered and one of the ways why how we can offer it is through technology and that is the entire purpose of universal native democratization of information to so that the access to information becomes easy for everyone involved and so that is uh, the you know that that this idea came to me in 2017 uh at the same time uh, as when i started realizing that uh, utilitarianism or fair and convenience is how people work and based out of that i realized that universal native um is an idea which can actually create a huge amount of impact with anurag you also when we did our podcast we discussed about how we can use technology for good and you said already people are doing a lot with technology for good right technology is in a way a great equalizer i'm not saying it creates uh, not does not create divide in fact the education systems right now are getting a new kind of divide only uh, between haves and have nots people who have technology and people who don't have technology so people who have technology have access to information and education people who don't they don't have access to education anymore but at the same time technology also enables you and in the future in the next couple of years we will see technology increasing like crazy so why not use technology to create a channel where people can access information so now the next thing comes what kind of information every kind of information now all three of us we are privileged indian males right we are we are from the same uh, age group so we have had very high quality of education subsidized education we have access to good housing good transportation systems good everything we are bilingual maybe multilingual how many people in india can say the same thing very few so how can we bring them to our level we are not super rich people no we are just just middle class people but how can we bring those people to our level so you give them all access to their legal rights if you are living in this state in this district in this village what are your legal rights how can you take a license how can you apply for a ration card how can you apply for a passport which all government subsidies are available for you you will be surprised to know that the uh, you know the government has announced a lot of schemes for students lot of schemes uh, i'm talking about before corona there is this scheme called the ladli scheme which was i think launched by prime minister modi only i mean it was not really launched by him it was just renamed uh, it was launched quite a long time ago so according to the, the ladli scheme is basically uh, you know empowering the girl child so the girl student will get a lot of subsidies extra books textbooks and so many other things similar to ladli scheme there are tens of other schemes and when they when the government comes to audit how many schemes have been implemented how many schemes are being uh, done 
they will just give them that largely scheme data. You know why? Because the people, for them, it is easier to implement. The administrators, the teachers, they, it is easier for them to implement the largely scheme. They will not implement any other scheme. Why don't they implement other kind of schemes? A, it's too bureaucratic, it's too cumbersome, it's difficult to understand, it's difficult to get the parents on board for the scheme. So the people just don't have access to that information. And this is one example of many. So, uh, to all the government schemes, all the government welfare schemes, all right? Secondly, government scholarships. Having access to information such as uh, what is mental health, what is being, you know, if you're doing something... Um, well, you know, people don't really realize when they are actually sexually harassing somebody else. They don't even know if the behavior is okay or not. They're still stuck in the, you know, uh, old ways of doing things, which is primarily from a patriarchal society point of view. That education is not available. So if you don't even know what you're doing is wrong, you will never correct it also, right? So uh, information related to that. Information related to um, the fact that the United Nations has, uh, you know, done this thing over here. So you can go and register yourself over there. Now, I'm talking about all these development schemes, mostly social schemes, because those are the people we need to get on board. Us, we already have figured it out. We know we live in a country where the healthcare system is basically bad. We know we live in a country where the education system is not efficient. We know we live in a country where the legal system is not good. But we have kind of understood how to manage it. But those people, they have not understood it yet. And they will not understand it also because they do not have access to information. And the same story goes for all middle-income economies of the world, all underdeveloped economies of the world. Because people just don't have these things, access to information. Now, changing an entire education system will take decades. I mean, for us only, it took like more than, uh, what, 34 years? Uh, to come up with a new education policy and when will it be implemented according to one of the main bureaucrats the secretary of the education department ministry of education uh, miss anita karwal she very subtly said in one of the webinars oh it will probably take a decade all right <laughs> so if it is going to take a decade to implement the policy who will be the beneficiaries of the policy nobody knows but what we can do for education is we can provide information directly to them right now you don't need to have a degree to understand what are your basic rights. You don't need to, you know, clear your 10th board exams to be able to receive the basic uh, schemes or the basic benefits which the government is responsible to give to you, is obligated to give to you. Yeah. So sort of in this case, how can technology help people such as your domestic health? Hmm. In order to understand what the government has to offer. Exactly. So that's that's very interesting. Um, so when I was going through that Russian card application, and it was in Gurmukhi, uh, my Gurmukhi is very very bad. I mean, I uh, I hardly I understand it by joining joining joining. There are still some letters I don't understand completely. So I have to take my help uh, help from my mother and father who are very good in Punjabi. Um, I was thinking. So even if it is in Gurmukhi, right? What if there, in her basic phone, I bought her a phone for 600 rupees. In her basic phone, uh, what if there was an application which could read it out to her? 
all right and now we have a lot of uh, voice over technologies i mean i don't know what exactly we call it voice over something but it's basically using a lot of ai algorithms where it will read out text and it can also listen to text and write it down very accurately in fact i tried it out uh, i was interacting with a friend of mine in japan uh, you know her english was not very great my japanese is zero so <laughs> i tried i let wait 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 before you speak anything let me open that website so there was a free website from one of the research uh, you know labs in one of the engineering colleges in the us they had created this free software so i said uh, i re- press record over there she said something in japanese it was recorded and then it was being translated into english and that broken translation i could understand that was one way of doing it the other way was how how about you know uh she already has her bio prints uh, you know bio scans uh, in the uidi system right in the aadhar system why do we need to apply for another ration card like why can't you just use the same aadhar number and why i'm saying this is uh, you know useful is because in estonia they actually do it so in estonia they have a unique id like how we have aadhar id now or how in the us they have a social security number like in the us you have to protect your social security number right it's it's a unique number don't share it with anyone in india also we get messages from the government don't share your aadhar card with everyone in estonia they share that number with everyone yeah this is my number this is basically like your name it's your digital name but the system is so secure that you don't have to do anything uh, like nobody can hack it it has not been hacked i think uh, it's been two decades almost since they implemented the system it has not been hacked yet in fact sort of uh, haven't they very recently uh, implemented an extension of that uh, social security number sort of a thing and provided an electronic citizenship to their yes. country wherein yes. you can sitting in india or pakistan or whatever country you can open a company over there yes. with all the legal system in place yes. just by getting one social number that's it exactly i mean uh, and it's it's not really a recent thing also they they uh, started doing this in uh, i think uh, uh, 5 years ago they were the first country to do this and similar and then like simultaneously uh, the other uh, countries uh, neighboring countries latvia and lithuania they started some other countries in europe started uh, the us in the us you can register a company from india itself in the state of delaware you can register a company for less than 50 dollars or 250 dollars one of the two uh, one of my friends actually did it so you don't even need to go to the us to set your company you can just send uh, you can put an online application uh, give all the details they will give you a social security number for your company they will send you physical documents they will post it from the us you will receive it in india and that's how you set up a company in us today so those things are happening but is it really happening in india is it very difficult to make it uh, in india that's another very in- interesting question so uh, one of our batchmates anurag um, one of our batchmates from uh, you know our batch in nit jalandhar he is currently the assistant director of the department of industries and commerce in the government of punjab all right so he's a uh, punjab civil services person so assistant director in the department of industries and commerce and we were discussing about certain things and he told me that there are there are certain pieces of land in punjab which were supposed to be industrial lands all right and he was given the uh, charge to convert those industrial pieces of land uh, and bring them back into the inventory so that the punjab government can use it 
or it can sell it to other people or it can lease it out to other industries. All right. And I said, so why isn't the Punjab government doing it? It's a good idea because you have to do it, right? He said, the documents related to those <laughs> lands are missing. <laughs> so, and nobody really bothers about it. The, the other aspect is nobody really bothers. Just imagine the documents related to a piece of property, which the value of which is worth in crores. We are living in a bankrupt uh, state, but nobody's bothered about it. It can actually generate revenue. A recent report by McKinsey actually told uh, the government of India that you can start selling a lot of your PSUs and you will start getting a lot of cash which you need right now. Because as I think everyone understands that uh, unlike the US or European countries, we cannot print more money to solve our corona crisis. Right? Nobody is bothered. Why? Because it is too bureaucratic. Nobody wants to take the responsibility. So my question is, if the people who are supposed to take responsibility are not going to take responsibility, then who else takes the responsibility? It is people like us. I do not trust the legal system also now. I mean, with the recent Prashant Bhushan case. So, yes, sure, there is a particular government we have right now which has a certain ideology. They're doing things according to their own way. It is okay. These things happen in every democratic country. But what is the guarantee that the next government which will come in power will reverse all the things that they have done? Who's going to take that responsibility? So that responsibility is not being taken by, uh, you know, our existing systems. And that is why we need to create newer systems. So Anurag, in the beginning, you had asked me about, you know, newer systems or how do we circumvent this? How do we create equality? Um, I'll take a case study from Japan again. All right. So Japan is a country which does not evolve very quickly. It's very hard to digest that information because everyone knows Japan as this highly advanced, technologically advanced, crazy country, right? Rich country. It is all of those things, but it doesn't evolve. It doesn't evolve quickly. And you can see bureaucracy killing a lot of things in Japan. Uh, if I talk about the corporate world, just recently in the beginning of this year, the biggest corporate criminal in the world, all right, bigger than Vijay Malay actually, <laughs> is uh, Mr. Carlos Ghosn, all right. Mr. Carlos Ghosn was the CEO. He, he has a distinct, uh, you know, uh, privilege of being the CEO of two automotive, uh, global automotive companies at the same time. Nobody, nobody else has done that in the world. He was a CEO of Renault, which is a French company, and Nissan, which is a Japanese company. And he basically, uh, you know, mismanaged accounts for his personal gains. He, I think he took around $120 million or something out of the company fund. So he was put into jail by Japan. They found it out. The auditors found it out. So they put him in jail. Then he escaped. Was so, it like a prison break? Oh, it was very interesting. There's a recent infographic video I, I will share with you later. What he did was he, uh, so he got out on bail after a couple of years, I think. Um or something then he threw a party because he was out on bail okay in the party he invited a lot of uh, people obviously they were musicians uh, they were caterers and everything and uh, after the party was over uh, what he did was like the police surrounded everything they were checking everyone and all those things after the party was over uh, so all the vendors the musicians and the you know caterers they were going back home and uh, mr gone uh, he had already planned his way out what he did was 
so you know there is this big instrument called the cello so cello has a big box also all right so <laughs> he he hid inside the box and then that van was taken to osaka airport the the airport where i came from uh, to india as well and then he uh, was loaded onto a private jet and he went to lebanon first he went to uh, i think uh, switzerland or one of the european countries from there he went to lebanon and lebanon and japan don't really have an extradition treaty or something and he's originally uh, from lebanon he's lebanese uh, but he grew up in brazil uh, so and you know why this happened i mean one of the reasons why a lot of what a lot of people say in japan about this is that it was um, because a lot of bureaucrats basically just could not face the truth that this has happened so they it was shame on them they felt shameful of sharing this information with others because they thought that it was my responsibility so when we talk about india where bureaucrats do not take responsibility the japanese are on on the other end they take too much responsibility and create issues over there all right um, <laughs> not so, only that like the other example yeah. that i want to take is yeah, yeah please so neither the uh, you know Uh, less of it is good not the more of it is good right? absolutely extremes kill you right uh, extreme of too much is bad too much of anything is bad right that is the same the other example covid 19 situation taiwan south korea vietnam these countries are taken as model nations today how they have managed the situation and japan is right next door japan should have been there right Japan is considered in a situation right now which is really bad. A lot of my friends who uh, from Singapore and Australia are not going back to Japan because they don't trust how they've handled the situation in uh, Japan. A lot of people living in Japan they are uncertain of how many cases they actually have and what they are doing to prevent these things. When the lockdown started, social distancing was mandated. Japan was still open. Japan said no 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 we are not having any lockdown. nothing like it because the government could not face up to the fact that we are not able to manage this they were feeling shameful and all these corporate leaders they were like mitsubishi and all sony and all these people they were like what are you doing we have to run we have to run the economy they just buckled down my friends who are working in japan they said that they are still sitting in the same office with no social distancing and why like even though they can work from home the government doesn't trust them or the people uh, the bosses don't trust them they say basically you will watch youtube at home so we can you have to come to office that is the kind of accountability like the fear of you know accountability from seniors that they have now um, the the question was right like okay i think i forgot the question <laughs> <laughs> the question was more about how we can uh, change the systems yeah uh, in yeah, yeah, yeah the other economy Exactly. So now, when when I've lived in Japan and I've discovered these things about Japan, it it seems really bad. So you know, when we had conversations about Japan with other people who had lived in Japan for quite a long time, they said Japan only changes when there is an external impact. In the eighteen hundreds, they didn't want to open up. All right, they had gone into this hibernation mode. In fact, they they have a particular term for it. I'm forgetting that the U.S. forced them to open up. open your ports we want to trade with you they forced them open so meiji restoration started uh, not not meiji restoration but the westernization started from there all right then uh, again like 
whenever there is now this carlos gone incident has happened because of this incident they will start changing their ways of policing corporate leaders especially international corporate leaders similarly the japan olympics is cancelled they want to do it again the world the world governments have basically said that if you can guarantee the safety of the athletes from the disease we will agree that japan should do it you know what japan is doing rather than actually guaranteeing the thing they are commissioning universities across the world including johns hopkins university which is like the leader in medical science in the world they are commissioning a study with johns hopkins university to come and assess the situation in japan so that they can give them a you know a credibility stamp that no 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 japan is good till the time there is an external threat they don't change covid 19 is an external threat and they are now going to change because it will start changing things that is what human beings are so japan is an extreme example over there but in india also we need continuously we need external intervention otherwise we will not change and that external intervention will not come from outside people from outside have tried like for generations they have tried to help uh, you know people in india to grow there are charities bill and melinda gates foundation and so many other things but there needs to be a systemic change and the systemic change has to be at scale a few ngos at ground level will impact that small community so i was just talking to another friend of mine and you know ronnie screwala is a very big name in india he has his own charity it's called swadesh i think it's called swadesh uh in maharashtra you go anywhere whatever charity is there swadesh name will be there what does swadesh do they give money to other charities what they do is they give it to some regional level ngo that you have to do these things but you will only use swadesh name like the publicity will be ours we'll give you the money then that regional ngo contacts some other grassroots level ngo gives them money and tells them you cannot use your name you can only use swadesh name all right so those things are also not systemic systemic changes can only happen through technology another way of doing systemic changes if we stick to one city let's say jalandhar or chandigarh we are not creating an impact for the entire country and people in jalandhar and chandigarh only will not agree with us but you understand this there are you know hundreds and thousands of other indians spread across india and across the world who will agree with what we are talking about right now and they would like to do something technology provides us that chance to do it right now that is what universal native is all about so i think that's a great way to put it that's a great way to put it and unlike a lot of people have moved away from india into these uh, better lands like americas and europe people who have lost faith in the indian system i still believe that there is a glimmer of hope that we can and we should get together and do something and technology as you rightly said and as aman aman was also talking about is that opportunity which if we don't take today then it's never going to be an opportunity again that is so i think uh, it's more urgent even uh if you think about the situation like corona virus how it affected policy making in india uh of course there's much debate on the measures that were taken taken by the government this modi government but i don't think entirely every decision was wrong and some of the steps were taken in the right direction 
at least the communication was there our prime minister was uh, you know uh, not occasionally on tv but frequently on tv talking to people talking about the steps that they are planning to do whether or not they have actually implemented them is another question but at least coronavirus has this has had this impact and as you said uh, this has been an external impact but how many how much can we wait for more such devastations to happen for a country like india which is still totally on its feet so technology is i think that factor and i believe that there are a lot of people like us like three of us are spread out all across the world who want to contribute something do something even by sitting in those distant lands even if they cannot be here all the time they still have that feeling that obligation toward their mother nation and i think technology is that uh, unifier or that enabler that will allow them also do something so as you rightly put thanks for uh, putting that right so aman uh, any other question for our famed uh, podcasters or uh, i i got two two things which were coming to my mind and i wanted uh, your thoughts on that uh, firstly uh, do you think that uh, you know anurag was also talking about this word and wherever whenever i i hear these two words right uh, one he was talking about was empathy and uh, the other one is uh, compassion right uh, so one thing with this universal event uh, you know we have talked about this before also that how people are changing their mindset now maybe earlier uh, so i would really want that this they will not go back to the as we were discussing maybe a system will go back but maybe the empathy part or the compassion part would stay and you know right now people are more uh, uh, like at least talking about environment about uh, mental health so one part is that that, that uh, you know can we can we change that will it have an impact on that and do you think that the current situation is is the right time right for for people to get more involved because they just realize that that they don't need to buy 15 shirts uh, in a week or in a month i mean right so they are realizing it now and i i know a lot of people personally who have changed uh, you know a lot in in these last 5 months that they were they are like we were doing it all wrong so that's the first i want your views on this I think I think I'll I'll continue with the second question later. But first, your views on this? Definitely. I mean, uh, so there are so many you know different aspects to that question that you asked, uh, Aman. Um, first is people have realized that uh, consumerism is not does not come out of need; it comes out of marketing. All right. So certain companies, uh, like the cop- the current capitalistic structure that we have. is not sustainable no matter what you call it no matter how you look at it it's not sustainable all right ultimately it comes down to the fact that there is one executive who wants to get a promotion or a bonus and he makes certain decisions for him it's a very short term uh, low impact decision but that decision actually amplifies you know we we have this uh, scientific term also like when you know mercury gets into the system or arsenic or any of the toxins get into the system and it completely amplifies at a uh, you know a food pyramid level so the same thing happens with the capitalistic decisions also nobody cares about oh what is going to happen to small islands in the pacific uh, you know if we uh, keep on in, you know uh, making these gas guzzling big vehicles because it is not affecting them directly for the first time probably we in the human history are um aware enough 
or have enough access to accurate information. So this is also a very big thing. Enough access to accurate information to make a call for ourselves and not wait for, you know, uh, not agree to what celebrities come on the TV and tell us, no, 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 eat this Kellogg's or, you know, buy this shirt or uh, get into this car or just take a vacation. All right. For the first time, we have enough accurate information to judge for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. What is safe and what is not safe. Yes, there are, you know, geopolitical situations uh, arising because of that, but they are all short term. Most of the people have, like, at least the people who can access information and understand it, they have understood what is going wrong. The other aspect of it is when you said, will people be willing to get involved in the social sector? Um, I'm part of these circles, you know, WhatsApp groups, Telegram messenger groups and Facebook groups, uh, which are involved in the development sector, the policy making, uh, you know, conversations and all these things. In fact, recently I got accepted to this amazing fellowship, but I could not join it. Uh, it's called the Global uh, Policy, Diplomacy and Sustainability Fellowship. Sustainability is just becoming a keyword everywhere. There are so many new opportunities right now for people to get into the development sector, to make change at grassroots, policy level, uh, you know, uh, corporate sustainability level and so many other aspects. And people want to get involved. In fact, I recently started a course from IGNO, uh, which is uh, called the Postgraduate Diploma in Sustainability Sciences. And, uh, you know, so IGNO also is taking its time to develop this online learning mechanism that they have now. They're using Google uh, primarily and the Google tools and all the other apps that they have uh, to give us all that. It has around uh, 90 plus learners from all across the country. And we have this huge WhatsApp group. And I had never really imagined that there will be so many people from so many different backgrounds doing this obscure course from IGNO. So everyone has its own, has his or her own reasons for doing courses from IGNO. For me, it's just the convenience and flexibility. For a lot of people, it's also economic viability. The course is just 5,500 rupees for a year long course. Right? So whether you have money or you don't have money, whether you have, uh, whether you're, uh, you know, you have a big career or you don't have a big career right now, whether you're living in a big city or a small city, a lot of people are interested in sustainability right now. The patterns are clearly out there. So people are ready to do this. They just want the right avenue to do it. And as it happens, and I think Anurag will agree with that, as it happens with the tech world, you know, there is, there are always these trends. Right now in India, we have the edtech boom. All right, everyone is getting into it. And you will see six months down the line, almost everyone comes out of it also. All right. So sustainability is also going through that same, uh, you know, trend right now, sustainability technology, because nobody has really figured it out. And I'm, I'm not saying that we have figured it out, but I think we, we have a model which is sustainable, which is doable also. Okay. So what was your second question, Aman? Second one, I, I, I was, you know, pretty intrigued by our, uh, you know, conversation here. And uh, I was thinking that, you know, how, how information can also lead to kind of awareness, with, which could further lead to almost a revolution, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, we were talking about the Japanese system and, you know, I was thinking about our local system, right, wherein, uh, you know, few people died in Punjab because of uh, that. Liquor. And uh, there were reports, right, that Punjab uh, has one of the worst, uh, you know, like excise policies in India. So if we can tax alcohol 
uh, rightly, right, uh, the government cannot and will not have any right to say that we don't have money to pay our teachers. So this was, you know, like I was reading it somewhere, but people are not aware of this. Yes. That Punjab is not, like the taxes we are uh, getting for liquor, it is almost the lowest and the consumption of liquor is, uh, we all know, right? Yes. Punjabis are like known for uh, their, their love for liquor. And it is just that, you know, so, so do you think that this information can lead to a kind of awareness where we can almost force the governments rather than mm. asking for our rights, right? It is almost like forcing them to do it now because it's been so long that, uh, you know, like there's an excise policy and uh, it's, it's amazing that why we can't make money out of it if people are drinking so much. So do you think that that can also lead and almost, because here I'm not exactly asking for my right. I'm asking like, you know, kind of forcing the government to do something, which is different from asking, uh, you know, like, uh, like we are asking, no, we are telling them do it now because of this awareness. So do you think that can also lead somewhere? So there are so many different ways I want to answer this question. Uh, let me try and, you know, so that I don't forget them all. First, yeah, because, uh, because uh, I, I must say, because uh, I hope I hope I was able to frame my yes. question because there were so many thoughts yes. in my head also when I was asking you this, right? Because I wanted your thoughts on this. So there are different aspects to you know your question. First of all, let's just talk about the question itself. Like you asked me this question, the correlation between the uh, you know revenue coming from alcohol uh, sales in India to the deaths related to spurious alcohol. To the uh, you know uh, bad uh, like badly needed reforms in the excise department in the Punjab government, and then relating all that together to the paying the salaries of the uh, you know teachers in the education department in Punjab. By the way, the education department in Punjab has the largest budget because they have the largest number of employees. They have to pay salaries to, right? Now this question itself, how many people do you think will be interested in such a question? Because it becomes too complex. It just becomes too complex. And what happens is our leaders, our politicians, bureaucrats, everyone understands this. So that is why they never pick up these topics also because it is just bad marketing. It's not easy to market these questions. Nobody wants to put in efforts to explain to people why what you're doing right now is affecting climate change. Right? So that is the first problem. Making information easy enough so that everyone can get on board with it. Because right now, if I tell people, you know, this is uh, a lot of floods are happening in Assam, how, how much does it exactly affect us? Not a lot. We feel bad for it. And the next thought is, we can't do anything about it. And we forget it. Right? People have to get on board. So that information dissemination has to be changed completely. It has to be simplified, but not in a way where the other person feels that I'm a dumb person. I cannot understand complicated information. So I've been giving these bits of information. No. Secondly, now let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, the correlation between different aspects. The correlation between the spending on medical research, the spending on education research with how we have managed the pandemic. As Anurag said, we have done a few things, right? And few things here and there. But whatever it is, we are still not the worst in the world. Agreed. But what is the correlation between uh, the countries which have done well? Alright. Now, you know, Hong Kong was already prepared for uh, uh, COVID. 
the only reason for that is not because hong kong is you know a rich place and people have money and everyone that you get no 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 not because of that it's a very human behavioral thing hong kong was ready for this because they had faced the sars pandemic also they were already prepared they knew how to handle it even in india you look at kerala they were the best prepared to handle a pandemic in fact most of the pandemics start from there because they are the first people to detect it right so the correlation doesn't happen in our complex systems right now there is no single uh, you know system or place where this correlation of data is happening in a very scientific manner why because we keep on defunding our scientific research uh, or sociological research in lieu of other politically sensitive things then coming to policy making there is no check on the policy making uh, procedure itself now uh, i'll take the example of punjab and up uh, and i'm going to talk about liquor here um, in punjab there is a concept called msp i think we talked about it also before so uh, msp is the minimum selling price so if you buy a bottle of beer or a bottle of whiskey or whatever from uh, you know any liquor shop in punjab it will have msp rupees something something so on a bottle of beer probably you will have msp rupees 160 that 160 is the minimum price on which this bottle of beer should be sold i'm talking about the regular 650 bottle 650 ml bottle but how much do you get it for at least 220 rupees so i was really surprised in 2016 when i came back to india in 2017 from denmark and like abroad beer is very cheap okay uh, comparing with it with india the same bottle would cost me 70 or 80 rupees in denmark like denmark had <laughs> cheaper beer than india and i went to the local liquor shop and i wanted to buy you know my beer and uh, he asked me for 180 rupees or something and at that time in 2017 i said it's written over here on the sticker msp 120 i didn't know what msp was he said yes i know it's got it is 180 rupees do you want to buy it or not so i got really pissed off and one of our juniors from uh, college anurag uh, she is a pcs officer in the excise department in punjab which is currently called the gst department so i i texted her i took a photo of that beer bottle and i texted her i said this is happening she said thank you so much because people don't tell us that these things are happening on ground and then she did her research she spent two days she asked her bosses in chandigarh and the chandigarh boss finally sent her a photograph of a confidential document from the punjab government uh, which was written in gurmukhi so again half of the people in punjab will not understand it because it is written in gurmukhi and in that document it was passed by the akali government i think in 2012 or 13 um wherein they passed a new law that there will be msp on the liquor bottles the retailers can charge whatever they want yeah that's what I'm, i was talking right? about it. so there is no check on this there is just no check on this now taking the example of up all right so this is one way of doing it so this is like for according to me this is systemic uh, corruption of the policy framework आपने पॉलिसी में ही डाल दिया है कि बॉस पॉलिसी गलत बनानी है राइट ऐसा होगा राइट दिस इज गोनाटिंग पार्टी 
so i mean there are a lot of uh, you know things over there so syndicates in india uh, act just like lobbies in the us at least lobbying is legal over there here it all happens behind closed doors and everything so i'm and so there's another aspect to it most of the businesses in india uh, a lot of those businesses a huge percentage of those businesses are owned by politicians so no politician is going to let go of money so we have the worst of both worlds we have capitalism bad kind of capitalism and then that bad kind of capitalism is being controlled by policy makers so they don't want to listen to you they don't want to do welfare of the people so anyway so let's talk about up where there is another aspect of it um up there there was there used to be a mayavati or an akhilesh tax and this is uh, from a time when i used to live in noida uh, in 2000 before 2014 before 2015 now mayavati or akhilesh tax used to be rupees 10 on every bottle of liquor so if the bottle of liquor rate says rupees 350 then you will get it for rupees 360 and during election times and it's not that it was hidden from anybody all right because it's it's nowhere legally written so people think oh it's not hit, it's hidden or nobody can create a case around it during elections the election commission of india they will put notices outside every liquor shop in up where they will clearly state you are not supposed to pay mayavati tax or akhilesh tax so there is a particular department of the government of india one of the strongest in the government of india which knows exactly what is going on the election commission of india but it has no power to change it so there is this isolation of departments there is no correlation between these things which is happening and this is what is needed and this will only happen through people and now coming to the last aspect of your question like how can we change it so again i was having a discussion with priyank priyank sharma who's like the doctoral research fellow in education and he talked uh, about uh, this very famous like very very one of the most notable educators from our country nobody knows about him his name is dr krishna kumar only the educators know about him and he talked about uh, like priyank was having a discussion with uh, professor krishna kumar in i think 2013 or 14 and uh, priyank said why are we not changing things and like general questions like how we ask each other and professor krishna kumar at that time there was some uh, you know some uh, scam happening one of the je or neat papers was leaked okay so they uh, they were conducting the exam again now all the students who had not used the leaked paper they said why are you conducting the exam again so they were out on the streets protesting there were parents and students and doing everything and professor krishna kumar was like so i'm not talking about this verbatim because priyank told me the story this is third hand i guess uh, he said so people are protesting right now that this is wrong what you're doing is wrong and the government is listening the supreme court is listening because people are protesting but he said why don't people protest about the fact that there should be no boards why why do we have board exams in 10th right why are people not protesting about that so protest also so for most people it is convenient as i said fear and convenience it is convenient for people to give boards but for a person coming from a poor background an underprivileged background who doesn't even have books to study giving boards is crazy they don't have tuitions they don't have all these access to other information for them boards is a problem and that's where professor krishna kumar said even protesting is a privilege in india 
who died because of the spurious liquor consumption the laborers the laborers if they protest is something going to happen <coughs> for the past 6 odd years i mean it's not only during modi government regime in fact before that also farmers have been continuously protesting farmers from tamil nadu farmers from maharashtra dairy farmers from maharashtra farmers from other parts of the country what is happening nothing has happened the number of suicides in 2019 of farmers was the highest in our recorded history their protests don't matter so whose protests actually matter like right now also je neet is going on on youtube it's going like crazy okay uh, either you are for taking je like there should be je or neet right now there should not be je or neet right now the number of people on youtube at least or on social media who are saying that je neet should not be done is more than the people who are saying that je neet should be done all right and we we all saw that what happened with the prime minister modi's man ki baat the number of dislikes that he had that is the power of the internet so these are the people who need to protest about the right things and it is our responsibility because we are part of that people to protest about the right things in the matter which works only then we will be able to change policy because ultimately at the end of the day we are still a democracy we still have the right to vote if we tomorrow decide not to give anybody a vote they will not be elected the same thing is happening in the us where the president is trying to systematically systematically dismantle the us postal service one of their oldest institutions i think it's older than their uh, independence also he systematically dismantling it because the uh, voting has to be done by mail in brazil when we talk about climate conservation the worst kind of policies have been passed this year after corona and amazon are the lungs of the planet in philippines one of the largest news networks all right the biggest news network that uh, philippines had for example in india we have uh, obviously doordarshan but then you know we have in ndtv aajtak and all like at that level it was closed it was forced to close during covid 19 so people cannot get right information so when you said does information change things yes it does and that is why these uh, you know a lot of people who have vested interests they will always try to sabotage information for their own gain they will not try to give it to you like aman you are a lawyer yourself and you know we were having this discussion also that most of the law is created in such a way so that only the lawyers can understand it and and with, with respect to information also rti is, is the best example i mean uh, the kind of uh, i mean uh, I'm, i'm not uh, here criticizing anyone as such but it's just that if you are having more conditions for us to have information from the government that clearly shows that there is something wrong in the policy making itself i mean why can't a citizen ask for more information i mean be it any government i mean i i should know right so yeah uh, i i i agree with that exactly and not only the rti i mean the lokpal bill it has not been passed it was not passed on the upa government it has not been passed on the nda government and probably I, we don't know when it will be passed Yeah, no. So I was just about to say an extension of what Aman said. You know, being a layman, I'm not. Uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not from the law background. But why do we have RTI in the first place? Why cannot we have all information public by default? 
Yeah. Why even keep it private? Because ultimately they are government servants. Yes. Right? They are supposed to be serve, serve, they are supposed to be serving us, not the other way around. So why do we have even this idea thing? So when they were doing this reform, introducing the Right to Information Act, why didn't they just change the fundamentals of this? The, uh, the answer is pretty obvious, actually. I mean, you're asking the right questions, and I think we know the answers. Uh, yeah. Just for somebody who will probably watch this podcast, um, I was talking to this uh, very, very experienced gentleman. Uh, he's currently in Hong Kong. He's he's part of this Asia Human Rights uh, Commission. Um, he did his uh, master's in social work. I think it was social work. I don't remember the exact thing uh, from JNU. And his master's thesis was about human scavenging in India. All right. What does human scavenging, he explained in detail so that everyone had that effect, that what he was talking about. When another, when one human with his bare hands collects the excreta of another human being, that is called human scavenging. All right. All Indian cities, 40% of gutter holes or manholes are uncovered in all Indian cities, 40%. And just imagine if that becomes a political uh, mudda or a political pain point, and it has come up in news various times. In Mumbai, there were deaths because people just drowned in the potholes, all right, especially during monsoons. Then uh, there have been car accidents because of it. There have been, uh, you know, uh, children who get stuck. In fact, just a few days back, I read, I think it was somewhere from Rajasthan that uh, people, you know, uh, rescued a very small child from one of these similar situations. 40% of potholes are uncovered in Jalandhar Anurag. Have we ever talked about it? And this is what RTI does. And this is what the leaders don't want you to read. Because, well, it just goes against their thing. Maybe they will solve it. Maybe they will not solve it. But they don't want you to have that. Because information is power. After World War II, the biggest intelligence or the biggest weapon in the world was information. It was not nuclear weapons. And the Cold War was basically that. Who controls what information? Right now, we have that Cold War going on with our own leaders because they don't want you to know. Maybe for their some reasons. Or maybe they, they also want you to know, but they don't know how to figure that out. Whatever it is, we have to help them. Or we have to create awareness. And that's it. Uh, so, thanks a lot, uh, Saurabh. I think uh, Aman and I really enjoyed talking to you about so many topics and so many perspectives that could only come from the richness of experience, from the places you have traveled and so on and so forth. But I think it has, uh, more than that, it has been a pleasure for the both of us to interview you, to turn the tables on our own podcast. Uh, so with that note, I think uh, we are good to conclude this. and. We'll keep waiting for the second season. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys asked amazing questions. Thank you both of you for doing this.